Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 36. I just want to welcome you again to Calvary Chapel. Those of you that are watching online, uh, welcome as well. We're glad that you can be part of this. Calvary Chapel, where we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through books of the Bible. Today we find ourselves at the halfway point of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. There's 28 chapters in it, right? So here we are, right in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. The context for today's message, you remember Jesus has been, you know, teaching, he's been um, doing miracles, he has proven uh, to many people that he is the long-awaited Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, however, everybody doesn't receive Jesus. As we know, the religious authorities especially don't want anything to do with Jesus. They've said his miracles come by the power of Satan. They've plotted together of how they should destroy him. And so Jesus, at a certain point, changed the trajectory sort of of his ministry, or at least the application, at least the methodology of his ministry. He stopped speaking plainly to the multitudes. Things like, follow me, or you're either with me or you're against me. You know, he stopped with the plain speech, essentially after that moment. You're either with me or you're against me, right? And then from that point on, he started speaking in parables. Now, that's an indication that he's starting to pull back sort of from the multitudes. And from Matthew 14 on, you don't really see Jesus speaking too much to the nation of Israel as a whole. He primarily now is focusing on equipping his disciples for what life is going to be like after he's gone to the Father. Now, that's essentially what we're going to see in this chapter today, what life uh, is going to be like during this age. And that's really how it applies to you here in 2022, because we're still in the church age. After Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended, that began what's called the church age. That will be, uh, that will be marked, the end of that will be by the rapture of the church, that Jesus will come. It says, keep watch. Nobody knows when he'll come. The rapture of the church will come at the end of the church age, followed by the great tribulation and so on. But we're in this period of time called the church age. It's also called the last days in the Bible. If you know your Bible, when did the last days start? Right when he ascended. There it is. That, those are the last days, according to the scripture. Remember Peter said, Acts chapter 2, what you see poured out here, the Lord would pour out in the last days. He quotes the book of Joel, right? Called it the last days. So in this, in this uh, chapter here, we see a picture of what it's going to be like during the church age. We're going to see that there's going to be persecution. This kind of follows the outline. There's three points, three Ps. It's really easy to remember. Persecution, provision, and protection. Those three Ps are kind of like little three Ps in a pod. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't know. Three Ps. During the church age, we need to learn some lessons about persecution and sin. We have to learn about this, that it's a reality. And we're going to learn a lot about sin uh, in this passage today. We're going to kind of go quickly through that because I'd rather not highlight. By the way, the, if you're sensitive to, th to graphic stuff, this first part of this message is like R-rated. And it's not the things I'm saying, it's the things that are in the scripture. So we need to learn some lessons about persecution and sin. We also need to learn about God's provision, which is number two. And number three, we need to learn lessons about God's protection. <clears throat> Since God has called us to follow him, we must know that persecution and sin are a reality, that he will provide what is necessary for serving him, and that he will protect us 
through every storm of life. We're going to see that in this passage. Verses 1 through 13, let's see some lessons about persecution and sin. If you're watching a movie, it might say now, meanwhile, back in Herod's palace. And so it kind of goes from this last scene, Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. He pulls away, didn't do any mighty works in his hometown because of unbelief. And now we would go to the next scene, which is in Herod's palace. His family was called, you know, referred to by some commentators as the Judean mafia, right? These guys were beyond crooked. You might have watched The Guiding Light. You might have tuned in on accident to some of these shows that are on Channel 3 during the day. This stuff does not compare to the Herodian dynasty, to the family of Herods, these rulers uh, that ruled in this area at this time. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now, this name Herod here, he is a Roman ruler. He ruled over the area and at the time that Jesus ministered uh, from 4 BC to 39 AD. Now, his father, this is kind of confusing because there's a few different people named Herod in the scriptures. Okay, there's Herod the Great, there's Herod Antipas, which is this guy, and then there's Herod Agrippa, which Paul ministers in front of, Agrippa and Bernice. You guys remember the book of Acts? Okay, this is Herod Antipas, and his dad, or his grand. His father, sorry, this it's a tangled web. Okay, his father is Herod the Great. You guys remember him because he's the one that ordered the babies to be killed. He tried to kill Jesus at his birth. This is his son ruling now, okay? He, um, his dad had five wives, and through them he had uh, quite a few kids, seven sons. Three of his sons were given areas to rule. Like his kingdom was split up into pieces and his three sons were given charge over different areas. Okay. Now, Philip, Archelaus, and Antipas were given areas to rule. Archelaus ruled to the south. Philip ruled to the north. This Herod, Antipas, he's the one that's most talked about in the gospels. Uh, Pilate, sends Jesus to Antipas. Antipas is great to see him. He says, hey, I hope he would do a miracle and all this stuff. Jesus doesn't even answer him as he's questioning him. So he mocks him. He puts a robe on him. He sends him back to Pilate. That's this guy. Now he marries the daughter of a guy named King Arteus IV, uh, which would later result in divorce. We're going to talk about that more later. Whole tangled web. Uh, Arteus comes and gets revenge on him, uh, exiles him out of the land. Him and his Second wife, go out of the land to the land of Gaul. They both die of suicide. It's a mess. So it says he's a tetrarch. Notice that there in uh, verse 1. The word tetrarch it literally means the ruler over a fourth part. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. You just said three of Herod's sons were given the land to rule. But now you're saying this means a fourth part. By this time, this word, although it meant ruler over a fourth part, uh, strictly became just a term for a subordinate ruler that ruled a smaller area of something. So that's Herod the Tetrarch. It just means he ruled a small part of uh, this area. He ruled the part where Jesus ministered. Now he says in verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. So Herod had heard the reports of Jesus, right? He had heard that Jesus was doing miracles. He was doing exorcisms. He was cleansing lepers. He was doing all this stuff. And he hears the report of Jesus, right? However he heard it, Jesus was pretty well famous at this point. 
And his response to that is, this has got to be John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Earlier, the Pharisees, remember, they said, oh, in response to Jesus' miracles, oh, he's doing power by the power, doing works by the power of the devil, right? He's casting out demons by Beelzebub. Well, this guy's response is, this has got to be John the Baptist, right? Now, the reason that he says this is because he's got a guilty conscience. And you say, well, why do you say that? Well, good. I'm glad you asked that. Let's keep reading. Verses 3 through 5. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So Herod had put John the Baptist in prison because John the Baptist called out Herod because of his illicit incestuous relationship. Okay, follow me. Herod Antipas was married to a gal, King Artis, Arteus' daughter, and they go and they visit his brother, Philip. This isn't Philip the Tetrarch. This is the other brother, Philip, of Herod Antipas. Two of his other brothers were Tetrarchs. Philip there were two Philips. One of them was a Tetrarch. The other one wasn't. But he had a wife named Herodias. And Antipas goes and visits Philip. And while he's there, Herodias falls in love with Antipas. And Antipas, uh, you know, he's all into her, but he's married. And so what Herodias does is she convinces him, you know, you need to divorce your wife and we need to be together. Here's the whole thing. Remember I said Antipas had seven brothers? Well, Herodias is the daughter of another one of Herod's, Antipas's brothers, which makes her Herod Antipas's half-niece, okay? This is complicated, right? I'm telling you what, you can't even write this stuff, right? Now, so essentially what happens is this guy divorces his wife at her prompting and marries his brother's wife, which is also his half-niece. So it's, the guy's a Jew by religion, Herod. He was a Demian, but he was a Jew by religion. And so John the Baptist says, you know what? What you're doing goes against Leviticus, right? You should not uncover your brother's nakedness, for this is an abomination, right? Leviticus 16, I think. Don't quote me on that. It's also an incestuous relationship. So John the Baptist calls him out on it. He says, it's not lawful for you to have her, verse 4. And Herod throws him to prison. Now, automatically, I'm starting to think, wow, this guy speaks the truth even when it gets him in trouble. Now, this is a political leader. This is a hardcore political leader. And John the Baptist doesn't have any problem calling him out on his relationship, on his sexual activity, on his private life. Now, you'll forgive me, but maybe... I can't help but think about the church in this last little season and how many people brought politicians into their church saying, well, he's the better of the two evils. But John the Baptist would have said, no, you're a philanderer, man. 
The things that you've said, the things that you've done with women, no way. John the Baptist would have called the guy out. For you that have ears to hear, you know what I'm talking about. You catch my drift. I don't want to get too specific about this. I don't talk, I don't bring people's names up. I don't do any of that stuff. But I just think it's an embarrassment to the church of Jesus Christ of how friendly they've become with people that they should be calling out. Now, it's not lawful for you to have her, and it got John in prison. Although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude. Interesting. The only thing keeping me from killing you right now is I'm worried about what everybody's going to think of me. Hmm. Verse 6 through 9, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she had been prompted by her mother and said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her because of the oaths, oaths and because of the oaths. <laughs> so his birthday comes around and now the daughter of Herodias, Josephus, the ancient historian, names her. Her name's Salome. You can look up some stuff. It's also incestuous. She ends up marrying a guy that's inside. It's crazy, right? These people. He makes this Foolish statement. I'll give you anything. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, the account of this is up to half of my kingdom. No doubt he's drunk with his buddies. Mark also tells us that they were like the head dignitaries of the, of the government around there. These were the bigwigs. And he's sitting at his birthday party in this palace. You can look up this palace. is called uh, Macarius. Um, this is where John the Baptist was executed. You can find all this stuff. Archaeologists know where all of it's at. And having this party in this incredible banquet hall with all these really important people. And here comes the guy's 14, 15, 16-year-old stepdaughter. And she comes out and dances seductively for all these old slimy men. And they all are all, oh, charged up. And Herod's all, oh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll give you anything. I'll give you half of my kingdom. You know, he's all drunk. And she goes over and she talks to her mother, and because it says right there, she was prompted by her mother, right? And, oh, I'll take John the Baptist's head on a platter. So, you see, Herodias, although John the, you know, all, Herod Antipas didn't have what it takes to put him to death. Actually, Mark's gospel tells you that Herod actually respected John. He knew he was a righteous man. He's read that? So he's conflicted. This haired guy's really conflicted. I've got him in prison, but yet I know he's a righteous dude, but then my wife is all, you know. But the wife had been harboring a grudge, and now here's this perfect opportunity, and she uses her daughter as this pawn in this thing, and, and it's just this disgusting mess. And um, nevertheless, it says, this is sad. That's a sad word right there, nevertheless, right? Because of two things, because of the oaths and because of those that he sat with. Okay, so he makes this promise, and it was a terrible thing for a dignitary to go back on their dignitary. <laughs> it was a terrible thing for, you know, somebody in this position to go back on their oath. It was, you know, you'd lose a lot of respect. And so that was more important to him than, uh, you know, when it came down to saving face or murder, murder was okay in this situation. And he goes and he has um, John, verse 10, beheaded in prison. And his head was brought to him on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. 
Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. John had disciples all the way even to the book of Acts. Um, Paul finds a group of John the Baptist disciples. They come. They've been with John a lot, through a lot. They come and they take his body and give him a proper burial. Speak the truth. Get in prison. Get beheaded um, for speaking the truth. Now, when Jesus heard it, verse 13, he departed there by boat uh, to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Let's learn some less- lessons about persecution and sin from this passage here. Um, the one about persecution, that's obvious, right? If you speak the truth, it's not always going to be popular, and it's going to get you into some peculiar, maybe even prison, maybe beheaded, who knows, you know? But you and I, this is a great question for us to kind of decide, right? Um, Where's the line of where you're going to stand on truth and where you're going to, you know, where's that line? Because if you decide it in the moment, your feelings are going to get involved, you're, you know, I mean, so it's a good thing to think about ahead of time while you're numbering your days. Will they say at your funeral, this is a person that stood on truth? They, I'm sure they said that at John the Baptist's funeral. Somebody was speaking the eulogy. Oh, John, man, he sure ate all my locusts and honey every time he came over. <laughs> but, uh, he, but he stood on truth. Lessons about sin. The danger of grudges. If you're nursing a grudge right now towards somebody, man, that's not a good thing at all. This is what she did. She nursed a grudge, Herodias did, because, because why? You know, somebody called her out in her sin, Right? <laughs> And she wouldn't let it go. She wouldn't just humble herself and just say, you know what? I'm, I'm wrong, Lord. I need to be right with the Lord. I'm in sin. She wouldn't do that. And rather than admit that she was wrong, she nursed a grudge towards somebody and it resulted in her being an accomplice to murder, right? Now, if you're nursing a grudge today, I guarantee you it is screwing up your life somewhere and people around you too are feeling the effects of it right? So really give that some thought because sin has a leavening effect. It has a corrupting effect. It's ruining your relationship. It's probably taking your joy away from you. It's probably all kinds of stuff like that. You have to get past grudges in life. You have to take these things to the Lord or else it's going to, it's going to destroy things. Okay. Now the danger of lust and intoxication, that's obvious right here, right? Guys, if you're looking at ladies dancing in front of you, whether it be, well, I was just checking the sports scores and these pop-up ads just happened to be on there. And I wasn't, you know, we were just watching Price of Right and the next thing that came on was this thing. And Man, stop playing games, man. Lust is powerful. You get these images in your mind of women and then all of a sudden you start looking at your wife differently and it just, it's a problem, you know? So you have to be careful about lust and intoxication. Intoxication, there's all these Christians out there today that say, it doesn't say in the Bible that you can't drink. You know, and that's true. It doesn't say that you can't drink in the Bible. But the whole thing is, is everybody I know that thinks that they drink lawfully, in quotes, every one of them that I know gets drunk or gets buzzed. And if you're experiencing a buzz from alcohol, you are in sin. That's it. Now, you shouldn't be the kind of Christian that's always trying to go up to the line with things. You should be a Christian that's so filled with the Holy Spirit that it's not even worth it to dabble in worldly things, right? God has something better for you than for you to always be wrestling with, how much can I get away with? You know? Now, the danger of pride and the fear of man because of the oaths and because of the oafs. <laughs> he doesn't, you know what I mean? He doesn't want to, I, oh, I can't, I can't lose face in front of all these people. Oh, okay, I'll just murder. <laughs> 
self-explanatory. Okay, now from this time on, Jesus kind of starts speaking to his disciples only, and uh, he doesn't really address the multitudes anymore so much, or the nation of Israel, like the leadership. He's, he starts to turn more to just his followers. And so I told you that was graphic, and you know I almost just want to go take a shower after reading that stuff, but it's disgusting. You got to love the Bible, though. It doesn't sugarcoat man's problem or man's solution. You know, I guess you can't sugarcoat the man's solution enough. He's, he's sugar. He's all the sugar, right? He's better than sugar. He doesn't even give you diabetes. Number two, lessons about God's provision and ministry. And when Jesus went out and saw the great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, so Jesus heard that his cousin died, that he was murdered, John the Baptist, and he withdraws by himself to go to a secluded place. He's not retreating out of fear. Jesus is, you know, most likely exhausted. If you've read what he's been going on in his life, he's grieving the loss of his cousin. Um, he's got to be thinking all kinds of things. This guy stood on truth about me, and he's dead now because of it, you know. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, Jesus withdraws to a quiet place. But what happens, though? The multitudes, they follow him. Now, if anybody ever had an excuse to say, can you give me a minute? <laughs> like he doesn't do it. He ministers to them until nighttime. It says that he healed them. I love Jesus' motive. Why did Jesus heal them? Because he was moved by what? Compassion. compassion. Did you know God was compassionate? He's so compassionate. Some, God, it's my prayer today that if anybody in here doesn't know that you're compassionate, Lord, that you would open their eyes, Lord, that they would see just from, from the word here that you have compassion. What a great quality. What a great thing when a person's moved by compassion. It makes me ask, Adam, what are you moved by? Fish tacos. It gets me up off the couch. What are you moved by in life? You know, it's, Jesus was moved by compassion. That's a good thing to be moved by. Goes to a deserted place. Archaeologists uh, f believe they found this place a mile from the Cove of Parables we saw last time. There's a church there called the Church of the Multiplication. There's a mosaic tile in there uh, depicting what comes next. Um, not sure if it's 100% accurate or whatever. Most of the archaeological sites in the Holy Land uh, were brought in by Constantine or his wife and stuff like that. So you, some of them you can't really trust it. You know, it's, I don't know. But... There's an interesting mosaic there that depicts this. You can look it up online. Now, he's healing their sick all the way till nighttime. A multitude of people and the disciples come up. They see that it's getting dark. You know, the sun's going down around the jagged, you know, uh, mountains surrounding uh, the area. And it's getting a little colder, no doubt, in this area. And the disciples look around and they see this huge multitude of people. And they realize that they're out in this wilderness, right? It's a desolate place. And they say what comes natural to them. They see this situation of great need. And they see it through the natural eyes and they're being proactive. And they say, Jesus, you got to send these people away. They're going to need something to eat, right? And now that seems like a natural thing. And I want you to think about that just for a second. This situation, 
there's a need there, and their first instinct was just to look at it through natural eyes, right? That's what we do a lot of times. Verse 16, Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. This is probably the most preposterous thing that the disciples have heard Jesus say to them. This, we know from the story that this is more people than there are in the city of Clear Lake, the town of Clear Lake. And the disciples think they're doing the right thing. You've got to send them away. They're going to get hungry. What are they going to do out here? There's no McDonald's. There's no in and out Can't get a double-double. Can't order off the secret menu. Animal style. Has ever been to in and out You don't know about that? Okay. You give them something to eat. <laughs> what? Okay, hold on. I have some lint. I'm like 250. John tells us that this five loaves and two fish are, they belong to a little boy that's with them uh, somewhere. And I don't want you to think of loaves like a big loaf of bread. You go to Ivy, $1.99, uh, French bread, garlic, butter. These are little loaves, like probably like it could fit in a pocket, little thing. It was common in Israel, just little loaves of bread, you know, and barley loaves, uh, no doubt. And um, that's what it says in John's Gospel, they were barley. Barley was this typical staple food of particularly poor people in this area. And these two fish, um, you know, I don't want you to think it's, you know, these are like sardines, dried up, you know, little things. And this is what was the typical thing. Like some mom probably put this in her kid's little bag or whatever, and he's got them. And that's, that's all we have. They make a mistake and they look at things through the natural. This is all we have. I could look around. That's all we have. I have got all these needs in my life. I've got to be a parent. I've got to be a husband. I've got to do this. I've got a and, and natural. I can't do it. I, I look around what I have. I don't have it. Right? It's a natural thing to look at situations that seem impossible through natural lenses. It's impossible not to unless you're shown how not to, right? Verses 18 through 21, he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled That Greek word is like glutted. They were stuffed like Thanksgiving, time to take a nap. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. If every man had a, you know, you just figure it's at least 10,000 people, right? Bring them to me. Take the minimal resources that you have and bring them to Jesus, right? Just take the little bit that you have. All I have left is scraps. Lord, do you know who you're dealing with? Right? I don't have, there's nothing left in me. Now you're starting to understand. He commands them to sit down on the grass. And I think it's kind of a nod towards the marriage supper of the lamb. You know what I mean? It's like a little preview. 
because you know that's going to happen. You know, we're going to all be united with Jesus after this church age and marriage supper of the Lamb. Everybody's going to sit and eat with Jesus. And I don't know what that's like. It's going to be good. Uh, probably gluten-free for Aaron because she has an allergy to it. So they'll probably be, you know, in heaven. Uh, the, probably be the best thing you've ever I think this is kind of a nod to that. Jesus wants to eat with his people. You think about things like this. Jesus could do anything. He doesn't need to make them sit down. He could just instantly make them feel full. He could put, the, it doesn't need to do this, but he, he sets them all down and he's got a plan through all of this. Every time you're reading the Bible, you have to read it through the lens that Jesus can do anything, right? That's how you interpret the Bible. Jesus can do anything. So why is he doing this? Because I don't think he does things on accident or haphazardly. He's not that kind of guy. He does things in decency and order. And he has them all sit down and he takes this small kid's, you know, lunchable and he looks up and he blessed and broke it. Then he starts giving the loaves to the disciples. Now there's something else he didn't have to do, right? And he gets the disciples involved with this. Because I think what's going on here is he's giving a picture. Not only is he meeting needs with compassion, but he's giving a picture of what's going to happen after he's ascended. That you disciples, okay, you're called to give something out, okay? Because there's a whole multitude of people in a wilderness full of sin, and they need something. They need what John 6, where Jesus calls himself the bread of what? He says, I'm the bread of life, right? And there's a whole group of people in the wilderness of sin that need the bread of life, right? And, the, and you don't have what it takes to do anything about it, right? I don't know if you've noticed that. If you've ever tried to do ministry in your own strength and you think that you've got something clever or, or you give people like pop psychology tips and you wonder how that's going to fix their life or, or you send them to the godless therapist that doesn't know anything about, you know, the creator or anything like that. And, and you see man trying to meet man's needs with man's resources and you see man just getting sicker and sicker, right? But they need the bread of life, right? And so... God is showing you right there, me right there. You want to meet these needs? You need to come to me and you need to partake of me. You need to partake of the bread of life. You need to be filled with me. You need to have something to give out before you can give it. And that's what he's training them to do. And so these guys would take this bread out and they would feed these people and they would run out of bread and fish and they would go back to Jesus and Jesus is just sitting there breaking it out and breaking it out and there's more and more and they keep coming back every time they're filled and they minister to all the needs of that whole place. Jesus turns around and sends them away and they end up and they've got more than they started with, 12 baskets. Do you think 12 is significant, by the way? How many disciples were there? What do you think the message is, right? What do you think the message is, right? And it's a rhetorical question. Just pray about it. Think about it, right? The message, I think, you know, is uh, you don't have what it takes in you to meet these great needs that I've called you to meet, but if you come to me, I'm going to give you more than enough to do it, right? Man, it's good. Jesus is so good. Love it. Those who had eaten were about 5,000 men. Clear Lake has 7,777 people on the last census. Wonder how accurate that was. Um, and then, so these are more people than the city of Clear Lake. <sighs> significant, this miracle. The Clear Lake inventory, there you go. This is significant. This is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And uh, because I really think this is what it's, you know, the purpose he's showing 
um, than what they're going to be doing after he's gone. Let's learn some lessons about God's provision and ministry. We've talked about a few of them. Great needs and impossible situations are inevitable. You're insufficient in yourself to meet the needs. You can take what little you do have to Jesus and he'll multiply it. Um, to give out the bread of life to others, you need to first take it yourself because if you're giving out and you're not taking in, you're just giving out flesh and uh, that's just corrupting. You know, you need to be filled with Jesus to give out Jesus. And I'm not saying you need to be filled with Bible knowledge. That's good. You need to be filled with Jesus to give out Jesus. I could introduce you to facts about my wife, but if I don't know my wife, I'm just giving you some cold facts on a piece of paper. You know, I don't know her personality. I don't know her character, right? You have to give Jesus to people. But you, you need to have in order to give. Um, to be blessed... You need to be broken, right? He blesses and then he breaks. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to give out for Jesus, if you're going to minister for Jesus, you're going to give your life to him and follow him, you need to be broken. You're like, man, how long has that been going on? I know. <laughs> it keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going because he's the one that knows how to do it. However much, that's up to him. For how long, Lord? Uh, the psalmist said it too. How long, Lord, right? He knows, but you have to be broken. If you're not willing to be broken, then, you know, that's a prerequisite of following Jesus. If anybody could follow me, he's going to have to deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me, right? He's going to break you. He's going to break out all that selfishness out of you. You want to be a husband? God's going to break out the selfishness out of your life, right? You want to be a servant of the Lord? God's going to break out that self-seeking, look-at-me thing happening, that codependent, I hope everybody appreciates me. He's going to break all that junk out of your life, right? He's going to break you. Sweetly broken. Lessons about God's protection, our last point. Verse 22, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Immediately, why would he send them away so quick? Why not just like hang out in the afterglow of all this stuff and just, you know, slap five of some people? Yeah, the bread, man, fish, yeah, we did it. Sign a few autographs. No, nothing like that. John 6, 15 says that when they perceived, uh, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. See, there are always people that want Jesus to be the king when he meets material needs. Always. There are always people that are looking for a sandwich, you know? And they, there are always people that just want to hang around for what blessing materially, temporally, they get out of Jesus. And so Jesus pulls out of that situation and he, they're not going to take him and make him this military leader that they think. He, you see, they have this picture of the Messiah when he comes back, not the Messiah when he came the first time. And Jesus won't let them by force put him into this role, right? So he goes to pray. And I always love it every time the scriptures say that Jesus prays. It's always uh, an encouragement to me to pray more because um, if he prays, I need to. When evening came, now that's an important part of the story because it's dark and things get dark sometimes, right? Don't they? And his disciples, another thing I want to point out first before we move on, look at verse 22. Maybe this is a good highlighter for you. Immediately Jesus made 
his disciples. Okay? These disciples are in the will of God. He made them get into a boat, go out into the darkness, and experience a storm that fishermen were terrified of. Okay? And he says, go over to the other side, Gennesaret, a few miles north of where they are. Picture the Sea of Galilee, western, or sorry, eastern. And so they're going, they're on the eastern coast about halfway, and then they're going up north, just right around the, wouldn't have to get very far off the shore to get there. But it says that they're like miles out, you know, stadia is the Greek word. They're like miles out in the middle of the lake. That's how strong the winds were, just blowing them. They're trying to go just straight up along the coast. They're blown out into the middle. Now, Jesus knows all things, and Jesus made them get into this boat, and Jesus knew the storm was coming, and Jesus knew it was nighttime, and Jesus knew he was going to be there, and they were going to be here. He knew all these things. He's teaching them something. It's important to note this, that being in God's will, sometimes God sends you into the storm. You see it right here. He sends you into that. There's this notion going around that Christians, you know, aren't supposed to experience hardships or anything like that. And it's, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. You don't, there's, there's whole churches, there's whole movements in Christianity saying if you have enough faith that no, no storms will ever come into your life. In fact, there's one phony baloney preacher on TV that I watched his wife say that they were going in, in their private jet to go minister somewhere and they saw a tornado. And when they saw it, uh, you know, Kevin Copeland or Kenneth Copeland, he rebuked the tornado and it came back up into the clouds. And <laughs> okay, okay. If that did happen, God, forgive me for mocking it. I don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, but I mean, because if you have enough faith, you know, you see that tornado coming and you say, oh, tornado, I'm going to minister. You don't get in my way. And then bam, tornado came right back up in the cloud and ran away in Jesus' name. <laughs> Jeez. Jesus sent them into a storm. He may have sent you into a storm before too. He may be going to send you into one soon. It could happen to any of us. That's, we don't know that stuff. God knows that stuff. Fourth, or, or verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. The Greek reveals they were totally beside themselves. This was, they were freaked out. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Two exhortations and a declaration. Be of good cheer, do this. And don't fear. Do not be afraid. Why? Because it is I. Some commentators see a reference to Exodus, I am. Fourth watch, um, three to six in the morning. Darkest before the dawn, right? You've heard that cliche, but it's true, right? The darkest part of the night is right before it gets light again. It's a ghost. So Peter says to him, Verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. 
And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and he began to sink and cry out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, you got to love Peter, you know. Here comes Jesus. If it really is you, can you give me some more assurance here? Just, just give me some. By, by, I'll come walk to, on the, you know. These waves were probably like, two, you know, three, four feet. This is the, the Sea of Galilee was known for these storms that just came out of nowhere, the way that the mountains were all arranged. And, and the, the elevation of the sea itself was so low that this was very common. Just out of nowhere, these winds would come in just crazy storms. And Peter says, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. Now, some commentators really get after Peter and they say, stupid Peter, why would you do this? This is presumptuous and, you know, and everything else. And, but I mean, you know, it's a matter of opinion, right? But I think it's a great step of faith, right? Like even here in the midst of this storm, in the midst of all my fear of all these other things that were completely terrifying me before, I, I, I heard you say that it was you and I want to be sure that it's you. So just call me out. I want to do whatever it is. Just call me to you. And he steps out and he, and he takes this amazing step of faith and Jesus sustains him. Jesus sustains him in the middle of this storm in life to do amazing things, even though it's terrifying. And it, it goes really well until he takes his eyes off Jesus and puts them on his circumstances, right? And you say, man, that's the story of my life. Everything goes well until I take my eyes off Jesus and put it on my circumstances. And that is exactly what happens to all of us. And that's exactly, I believe, what the Bible is telling us here today, telling you here today, telling me here today, to stay in the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing the what? Word of God. I want stronger faith. Peter had faith. I want stronger faith. Good news. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You want stronger faith? You're not going to get stronger faith reading the Bible for one hour on Sunday while you're at church. You're not going to have a strong faith. Um, keep your eyes on Jesus. Friends, there's a way to read the Bible where you don't have your eyes on Jesus. There really is. If you read this all as just a list of do's and don'ts, and that's all you see in here, your eyes aren't on Jesus. You're a legalist. You're a moralist. You're thinking that Christianity is just a way for you to tone up your life and make yourself a little bit better by following some of the do's and not doing some of the don'ts. And that's not a, that's not a relationship with Jesus. That's a relationship with do's and don'ts, right? And you see what Jesus had to do to try to get through to the Pharisees' heads that that's how they lived, right? And they didn't ever get it. They thought they were their own saviors because they followed the do's and don'ts. Now, you can read the Bible the same way. You can say, oh, I'm acceptable to Jesus and I'll go to heaven now because I keep most of the Ten Commandments most of the time. That's not a relationship with Jesus. That's a relationship with legalism, with moralism, right? So you have to do those two things. You've got to be in the Word, but you have to keep your eyes on Jesus, both, both of those things, right? Short prayer Peter had there. Lord, save me! Who's prayed that one? Anybody prayed that one? Yeah. <laughs> Love that prayer. <laughs> when you don't have time for eloquence, oh, most heavenly Father, divine and exalted in all of your ways, I pray that thou would now save me. <laughs> Gentle rebuke, though, right? Lord, why'd you fear? I really doubt that Jesus was like, why'd you fear, stupid? <laughs> that might be how your dad dealt with you, but... Or your mom. But that's not how Jesus deals with people. 
Why'd you doubt? You didn't have to do that. There's something so much better. You didn't have to do that. We see Peter growing through the scriptures, don't we? Look at their response. I love this. Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now that would be tremendous. Like, cut off. Those who were with in the boat came and worshipped him. (sighs) That word means to just lay yourself out before something, somebody. Just fell to their knees. (coughs) Certainly this man has authority over the elements. Here I thought my problems were so great. This guy has authority over nature. Great picture of the church today, isn't it? Jesus is up on the mountain praying. The disciples are left to go through the storms of life, the darkness. They think, you know, he's, he's in a separate place and he's praying for them. Where's Jesus today? He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you today while you're here to go through the storms of life, right? Lesson about God's protection. He will protect you through all the storms in this life, right? However he chooses to do that, he will get you through the storms of this life. Two things that are helpful for you to do is keep your head in the word of God and keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And it does get dark right before the dawn, but he will come and he will take us out of the darkness at some point. John 6.21 says the same account. They willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. You read that in John? Doesn't that stick out when you read that? You go, that's weird. He gets in the boat and immediately they're at shore. He will come when it seems darkest and he will take you out. And hallelujah, hopefully that comes soon. Lessons about God's protection. Sometimes, even when we are right in high times of ministry one day, man, we just fed all those people. You remember that? So cool. People are so happy. They want to follow you everywhere, Jesus. Okay, get in this boat and get into this storm. (laughs) Okay. Right in the will of God, you find yourself in difficult situations. Don't ever think that because of difficult situations that it's because you're, you're somehow like a subpar Christian or something like that. These are the disciples Jesus sent them right into a storm, okay? Uh, God may put us right into the storm. Notice he said, you know, they, they, he commanded them. Storms come. They were in his will. He told them to go. He knows all things. Believe the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Life changes. Storms come. But Jesus is constant, Right? He's the only constant. You'll find that if you're a young person here today, um, you're going to find that the only thing constant in this world is Jesus Christ. You're going to find that in his word. Your parents aren't constant. Your boyfriend isn't constant. Your girlfriend's not constant. You're going to find that the only thing that's constant is Jesus Christ. You're going to find that. And that's going to become incredibly comforting, most likely after a whole bunch of heartache and storms, because you want other things to be constant, but they're not, right? But you are going to find that Jesus Christ although heaven and earth will pass, you know, all this stuff will pass away, my word will stand forever, Jesus Christ says, and we're counting on it. 
Although we live in a dark time in history, he'll come and get us. Verse 34, when they'd crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. Maybe that they'd heard word from that gal that got through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. And they've heard that this is how it works. And they come and and they're excited about getting healed. And uh, as many as touched it were made perfectly well, Jesus healed. Uh, Another just a huge group of people. This is Jesus' nature, healing and restoring and building. And and that's what he's doing in your life today too. He wants to do that. Are you like these people? If I could just touch him, if I could just get to him, right? You can get to him through prayer, through the word of God, through the church, through, uh, you know, body of Christ. You can get to him through his spirit. If that's what you want, draw near to him. and He'll draw near to you, the word says. In conclusion, some lessons for the age. We learned about persecution and sin. Persecution is inevitable. Sin has some ugly things, characteristics. Watch out for grudges. Watch out for these things in your life. Watch out for getting intoxicated. Um, Watch out for messing around, even with the line of getting intoxicated. And I want to make this 100% clear. Being buzzed is sinful, okay, because you're, you're altering your state. You're intoxicated. By the definition of intoxication, if you're buzzed, you're, you know, we can't have the men of God. We can't have this stuff, man. We need God to raise up men and women uh, that are going to live and be like John the Baptist, uh, you know, and protection, uh, provision, I'm sorry, provision. Look, the, the need's impossible to meet on your own. So what do you do to go to Jesus to get filled with him, you know? And are you, good, are you learning more about him or are you just learning more about his word? Because there's a difference. Learn his word, but learn who he is and protection. God will get you through every storm. Have you come to know the God that quiets the winds, the God that provides, the God who is worth dying for? Have you come to the place of the disciples where when he got into the boat, they worshiped? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today, God, and bless it to our hearts. And thank you so much for speaking to us, for giving us your constant presence. Lord, uh, we're weak in the flesh. Our spirit's willing, our flesh is weak. So, God, we pray desperately, would you sustain us this week as we draw near to you, as we navigate the storms of life? Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.